when Deng Xiaoping went to Houston, he went to a rodeo and they wanted to present him with a 10-gallon hat. That is Kit Dobell, who was chief of protocol under President Jimmy Carter. I'm Judith Monachina, and I had the good fortune to interview Kit in 2018 and 2021. After Jimmy Carter's inauguration in 1977, he invited Evan, Kit's husband, to be his chief of protocol, telling the couple that he considered it a job for two. Then, a year later, Evan went on to be treasurer of the Democratic Party, and the job was Kit's alone. We thought it might be interesting to hear about that role during President Joe Biden's first week in office. The role of chief of protocol, it involves a a lot of different aspects, but um, a, a major part is being very involved in the international trips of the president and first lady. And you go ahead of the trip and, you know, work out the arrangements of, of the, the schedule and where the principals would stay and, um, you know, what, it, it's just a discussion of the, of the schedule ahead of time. And, and not for the first lady, but for the president, specific people stay on the ground. It's usually several weeks before a visit and some people stay on the ground and, and then continue to work on the visit for a presidential visit um, on, a, on a full-time basis prior to the visit. But the chief of protocol goes on the advanced trip. Um, it, was, it was much more informal with, with Rosalind's travel, but with the president, um, the advanced party uh, takes Air Force One um, because it's advanced for the pilot. Uh, you have the medical staff that go so that they can check on medical um, availability. You have communications people. You have uh, people from the various networks who go to see what the camera setups are going to be. So it's, it's, a, it's a wide range of, of, of people who go. Chief of Protocol has a significant role at home, too. Now we come to the 10-gallon hat. The visit of Deng Xiaoping to the U.S. was no ordinary visit. It was part of a normalizing of relations with the U.S. and China. Kit traveled with Deng Xiaoping from Alaska, where he landed, to Washington, D.C. Then they traveled to other American cities. They, they, they wanted to present him with a 10-gallon hat, um, but they wanted to make sure that the size was correct. So there was a lot of making sure that the size was correct. And, um, and, and during the intermission of the rodeo, there was a stagecoach and he was going to be invited to ride in the stagecoach to ride around the, the ring of the. And um, so I explained this to him, you know, as we were going to the to the event, of, you know, that he would be given the hat and that he would, you know, be given the opportunity to ride in a stagecoach. And um, he didn't say anything. But um, when, you know, he was presented with a hat, he put it on right away with a big smile He marched out and got into the stagecoach. And he waved the hat out, out of the window of the stage. He must, you know, he must, I figured he must have seen Western movies sometimes because he, he kind of knew exactly what to do. And I think that that picture, again, made Americans comfortable with him. Mm-hmm. You know, this, there'd been a huge thing about would people be comfortable with the head of yeah. red China, you know, um, the communist China. But his being so natural in those situations and the photographs made a huge difference and I was so glad that the hat fit you know it would have been a problem if it was too big or too small right 
But it, but him leaning out the window, waving the hat was just, it was exactly the right thing to do. So it was, I was happy that I could, that um, I could, you know, tell him ahead of time, because so often if you go into those, those situations, people present you with things you're not expecting or. Right. You know, they, right. What do I do with this hat? I mean, am I supposed uh, to put it on? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and it was amazing to me that, especially outside of Washington, he was treated like a rock star wherever we went. Um, his car would be surrounded by people just wanting to see him. And I realized that my principal role was if I saw somebody who was pushing a piece of paper toward him that they wanted him to sign, because getting autographs is always a, a huge thing, that I would ask them to write their name and address on the paper and give it to me, and I would get his signature. Because if, if other people see somebody signing something, then everybody pulls out a piece of paper. And, you know, it, then it, it really throws the schedule. And I would um, get the paper. And then at the end of the day, when he was going back to his hotel, I would give him the stack <laughs> and he would sign them. And then I, then we would send them off to the people who had asked for them. So it would, it would all work out. And it was kind of keeping your eyes open for things like that, that you could kind of help there not be a problem. Uh, thing. He was actually the only one um, that, um, you know, that there were those kinds of crowds for. I think that it was his personality that came through that made people warm up to the whole idea of, right. of normal relations with China, which, you know, had seemed, you know, like a, like something that, that was stressful. Listen here to our story of the Camp David Accords, peace agreements between Egypt and Israel. The time that I spent at Camp David, the two weeks at Camp David during the negotiations was, it was two weeks. It was particularly memorable, but, but it was certainly in terms of the impact in history, um, a huge step forward. When we were first in Washington, actually, the Prime Minister of Israel was was Rabin, Isaac Rabin, and President Carter's assumption was that he would be the one that he would be negotiating with. But much to um, everyone's surprise, he lost his re-election in in June of '77, and Prime Minister Begin was was elected. So nobody really knew Prime Minister Begin. They knew of his history um, of being. Um, he was very conservative and very independent. He was he was um, very Eastern European formal. President Sadat um, came quite often as a visitor. So when I was the wife of the chief reporter, I spent a lot of time with Mrs. Sadat, and spending time with her was was um, a, a genuine pleasure. Then, um, as it got closer to the whole idea of the time in, at Camp David, um, both. Prime Minister Begin and President Sadat came pretty often. And then when they accepted the invitation to to be at Camp David, it was a huge thing that President Carter did by inviting them to come, having no press and no ending date. You know, it was we're going to go and we're going to try to figure this out. So for the arrangements at Camp David, the, the head of the, of the White House mess is head of the food at, at Camp David. He called me about the, you know, the the challenges. Um, Prime Minister Begin was kosher, and many of the members of his party were kosher. Um, then President Sadat uh, had t- spent time in prison, and he had his own cook who cooked everything that was the President Sadat ate. He had quite a bland diet. He had a lot of um, digestive difficulties because of his um, because of his 
life experience. And so the discussion of, of how to, we, we would have, um, you know, the members of the three delegations to, um, to, to deal with on three meals a day. <laughs> um, and the head of the, the, the food office suggested to me that we actually just do everything kosher which made a lot, I said, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, nobody would really know. I mean, it's just, but then we didn't have, we wouldn't have to deal with the ocean, the issue of who was kosher and who wasn't. But I said, um, if, if it could truly be a secret, if you and I were the only ones who knew, that would be great. But the problem is that everything leaks out. So when the Egyptians found, you know, when it was that we were ever, they were eating kosher food, which they would be upset that we were favoring the Israelis and that, you know, mm-hmm. they might leave. You know, I said, it's a great idea, but we can't do it. Mm-hmm. So um, he, he, he agreed. Um, the, the cabins at Camp David, the cabin where the president stays, I'm, I'm sure that it's been redone in all the years that since then. But at the time, it was kind of a 50s ranch house with um kind of a typical kitchen you know not not all that large but the the stewards who cooked the meals for the carters you know they were set up in the kitchen and then president sadat's cook cooked out of that kitchen then there was then the the person who did who was in charge of kosher food uh, he also worked out of that kitchen which must have been i'm sure that they made the kitchen kosher for him <laughs> so that he could but um Food became quite an quite a um, an interesting part of it because um, President Carter um, actually he did all the negotiations. He started sitting with President Sadat and Prime Minister Bacon together. The three of them would be together in the talk, but they would end up fighting with each other so much. After a couple of days, President Carter said, "That's not working." And he started meeting with them individually and he'd make whatever progress he could with one and then he'd go to the to the next one. So the other members of the delegations who were there really didn't have that much to do. I mean, they would talk among themselves and they would meet with with their leadership, but they weren't part of the negotiations. And prior to coming to Camp David, when we talked about where we assumed that they would all meet together, all the people who represented the three countries. And we had learned after the Paris peace talks that you have to have a round table if you're going to have more than one delegation. If you're going to have more than two delegations, you have to ha- has to be a round table. Well, there was no large round table at Camp David. And the only large conference room was a typical rectangular table in a rectangular room. So that wouldn't work. So we ended up putting plywood on a billiard table and with a cloth, and that was made the large round table. In the two weeks that we were at Camp David, the three three delegations never sat there together. Individual delegations would use it for meetings. So where Sadat and 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 Prime Minister Bacon and his wife were were staying, their cabins were across a path from where the Carters were. Sometimes the Bacons ate in their cabin, but um, sometimes they went to the mess hall where everybody else was eating. But the kosher caterer wouldn't know until he saw them walking down the path. And he knew that if they sat with the rest of the Israeli delegation, that the other members of the delegation would ask for kosher food if the prime minister was there, where they wouldn't necessarily if he wasn't. 
So I always thought that he had one of the hardest jobs because <laughs> he had to suddenly come up with <laughs> with 10 kosher meals if the, if he saw the Begins in the path. You know, th- so there were, you know, there were things like that that um, were kind of going on because the other members of the delegation who weren't that busy, that, you know, meals became very important. And I would run into people a long time afterward who said they were still dealing with the 10 pounds they gained at Camp David because <laughs> they were doing so much eating. So, so food was a, was a, um, a real issue because there wasn't, you know, we, we were closed off. Right. People couldn't leave. I mean, it was, it was a time before any kind of real communication. So we, we, all the calls went through the White House switchboard. The press was outside of the grounds of Camp David in, in a press place where, where Jody Powell, the press secretary, would go down and brief them from time to time, but they couldn't get any information. Um, Chief of Protocol is a you know, is with the arrangements. It's not with the substance of the discussions, uh-huh. but um, in making people feel comfortable, then very often you can, uh-huh. you know, um, do you can do your part. Uh-huh. One of the things that I was very proud of is um, and that I learned later after the treaties had been signed on the on the White House lawn. There was a follow-up casual dinner with people from um, the State Department and the Israeli embassy who'd been involved in the, in the visit, and, and uh, they invited me to come. They told me that I had played an important role. Um, after Camp David, there were, you, you know, that was in September, and the, and the signing was actually the following March. So there were a lot of negotiations that went on um, in the intermediate part, and President Carter went actually went to both Egypt and Israel to do negotiations and, and things were, you know, were, were up and down. Um, mm-hmm. There was a, a lot to be worked out. And during one of Prime Minister Begin's visits, he, he came often and, and he and I had a very comfortable relationship. But I noticed when he, I met, I would walk up the stairs. That was part of the role, the chief of protocol. You go up the stairs on the plane and welcome the visitor to the United States mm-hmm. uh, on behalf of the president and uh, and the American people. So, and then, but I could tell right away that Prime Minister Begin was, he, he wasn't in a good mood. Oh. And um, then we came down and we, they, it wasn't a regular, it wasn't a White House arrival ceremony because he'd had that long before that. Mm-hmm. So they had a, they would have a mini ceremony at the Air Force Base. Mm-hmm. And he's in the car, he started complaining about the way the, the band played the national anthem. <laughs> and, you know, I could just, <laughs> tell that things weren't <laughs> going well but he he and his um he and his wife were invited for dinner privately with the carters that evening so i took them over escorted them over to the white house and then i waited and then mrs bacon came down and uh, she left you know early in the evening so i took her back to blair house and then i went back to um to sit in the White House to wait for Prime Minister Begin to bring him back to the Blair House. Of course, it's just across the street, but mm-hmm. but I really saw that as as my role. And and I'd I'd had a request from one of the negotiators in our State Department to ask um, because it was a Saturday evening, and they said that they they needed to know um, when the next when the next negotiation session would be held, so that they could plan for it. And Prime Minister Begin and President Carter were going to work that out, going to decide the timing of that. But it would be too late. They couldn't call the Prime Minister and ask him, you know, late at night. So if I could find that out, that would be very helpful. So, but when I escorted 
Prime Minister Begin back to the Blair House. I asked him about it. He said, no, he said, it's all over. There's no more negotiation. We're done. Um, so I conveyed that to the negotiators who got in touch with uh, Moshe Dayan, who was the Israeli. He was the foreign minister at that time and explained to him that, you know, the situation. So they were able overnight to come up with something to present to Prime Minister Begin, get him to con- to continue the conversations. <laughs> so it was very, um, you know, that was, um, and they were very grateful. You know, it was one of those, one of those things, Prime Minister Begin, when, when he came down and I was sitting there, he said, oh, he said, you shouldn't have waited. I could have just, I could have, you know, gotten across the street. And I said, no, no, I, you know, I was, I'm happy to, um, happy, happy to escort you. In 1980, President Carter lost his bid for a second term to Ronald Reagan. During the transition, First Lady Rosalind Carter, for whom Kit was by now working as chief of staff, requested that Kit be there when they hosted the president-elect and his wife at the White House. They invited the the uh, the Reagans to come, President-elect Reagan, to meet with President Carter and, and Rosalind, Rosalind to show Nancy Reagan the, the family quarters. So Rosalind asked me if I would um, be with her for this conversation. And I met with, um, I stood with Rosalind. The Reagans were coming in through the diplomatic reception room, which is the lower level kind of sort of thought of as the back of the White House where people come in and the press was out there. Of course, this was a huge thing to to have the Reagans arriving. And um, Rosalind and I, from where we were standing, we could see that the Reagans car pulled up. And then we looked the other way and we could see President Carter walking over from the Oval Office. Mm. And usually the, the Secret Service holds a visitor at the guardhouse till the president's in place, but I don't know if it was because it was a, you know, a president-elect. I don't know exactly why that didn't work out the way it should have, but the Reagan's car pulled up, the press is all there, and and Rosalind Rosalind saw that President Carter wasn't there yet. She didn't want to go out just herself. She she said, she yelled, Jimmy, they're here, and he started jogging. So, then everybody arrived in the diplomatic reception room at the same time. The the um, one of the head of the ushers went out and escorted the Reagans in. But of course, the press didn't get their picture of the Carters greeting the Reagans. So they all went outside and recreated the scene so they could get a picture because it, you know, and and everybody was then people were standing around the diplomatic reception room saying, you know, were we early? Were you late? I mean, it kind of broke the ice actually. You know, the the process of recreating it made everybody laugh, and so it actually helped with to break the ice. Uh. The Dobells went on to other adventures, of course, but soon after leaving Washington, they bought a house in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, where he had lived as a child, and they had both lived, and Evan had been mayor. In fact, that was where they met candidate Jimmy Carter. Anyway, they found a change of pace in Pittsfield on their two-acre piece of land. That change of pace can be felt in this story she tells. And, and there were two acres that I mowed with, with a tractor, which was quite a new experience um, for me. But it was great to kind of get away from things. But one day, Evan came running out. I was on the tractor mowing the lawn. He waved to me and he said, Roger Mudd is calling you. He was, uh, I think he was CBS correspondent. He was in one of the major network, because there were only major, major networks at that time. Uh, he was calling one to speak to me. I got off the tractor and went in and 
and he was uh, calling because uh, the chief of protocol, who was Mrs. Annenberg, uh, had been appointed by President Reagan, and she had curtsied to, I think it was Prince Charles' visit. And of course, Roger Mudd was wanting my opinion. But but um, the last thing I wanted to do was be quoted being being critical of the new chief of protocol. <laughs> but I I said that I um, I off the record I I said that that I I knew that I mean her husband had been ambassador to um, to London so she had been you know that had, was something that she was comfortable with. I mean we as Americans we don't curtsy to you know to foreign royalty, <laughs> but um, I I just I. You know, I chose not to comment um, on the subject. Um, I certainly didn't want to be embroiled in 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 that discussion. So, um, but it was just kind of amusing. So then I could go back and get on the tractor. <laughs> and glad I didn't have to deal with that sort of thing all the time. <laughs> this interview was conducted as a collaboration of the Housatonic Heritage Oral History Center at Berkshire Community College with the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute. The entire two-part interview is archived with the University of Massachusetts Library Special Collections, and a partner article to this podcast appeared in the Berkshire Eagle on Saturday, January 23, 2021. There, in that article, you can learn more about how Kit came to be at the center of the world's political stage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>